Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Billy Joel's last album is a study in contrasts. It sounds like a new beginning when it was really the end of an era. It alternates between gritty, angular rhythms and sweet flowing melodies. It's arguably one of his most divisive albums, yet it earned him a handful of award nominations, a new generation of fans, five million in record sales in America alone, and a pair of songs that would become classics and mainstays in his live shows. River of Dreams was released on August 10th, 1993. It's Billy's 12th studio album and the last pop record he'd release. He switched producers once again after Stormfront and jettisoned the last of his classic lineup midway through the production to complete it. As a result, fans have mixed feelings about the record, but a close listen reveals lyrical and arrangement motifs that weave through the whole album. Put together, they form a narrative arc that starts with the frustrations and turmoil of everyday life, leads to a spiritual reawakening, and comes to rest with a peaceful reconciliation with the world and a sense of optimism for what's to come. Join us as we dig deep into River of Dreams. I'm going to say this is probably Billy's most divisive album. People are mostly in agreement about the other albums. I think everybody at least agrees what they are. The ones that are very poppy, everybody's like, yeah, it's really poppy. It's a question of whether you like that or not. So I think this time we're going to end up uh, Siskel and Eberting this one. You know, I've been thinking about this record all day long as we've been gearing up for it. The whole time I'm like, I'm not going to know really what I'm going to say anyways until I actually open my mouth because this is one of those records that like depends on my mood is how I feel about it. I have a big personal connection to this one. I mean, this was my Billy Joel record. This was the one that I went and bought the day it came out. You know, I kind of came online in life. Stormfront was like magically in the house. This is the one I knew when I went out and bought. Today, I sat down with it for probably the first time in, in nigh on a decade, if not more, and did a full album listen to this thing. And listening to it all the way through was a very different experience. It's not an album that I go to front to back that often. And I think now more than ever, as we've been chronicling the career of Billy and all the different players who've played on these albums, I'm in a different headspace now than I probably was the last time I really gave this a different listen. I found that what was bubbling to the top for me as far as what I was gravitating toward has changed over the years. I've kind of shied away from the singles and there's some of the deep cuts that are a little more buried here that I found myself really drawn into this time around. Funny enough, having said that, Billy himself said he was disappointed in this album, even though it did great. He only had like one hit single off it. And not that he had one hit single, but he said, I felt like I really had something to say lyrically and nobody wanted to hear it. (laughs) Based on reading the lyrical content and what I've heard him say, this Overall, was one of the more personal albums of his where he was really talking a lot about personal experience. And I can see that being disappointing and a little defeating in a way when you finally decide to really open yourself up more on that level. Even though out of the gate, it was great. It just didn't seem to have the longevity that some of the albums may have had. It's an album of dichotomies. 
Within songs and over the arc of the entire album, there are stark contrasts and juxtapositions all over the place. And they come to define the songs, the passages, and then the album as a whole. And that extends to the lyrics in that he vacillates on this one in a way he never did before between some lyrical flights of fancy that I'm going to say we haven't really heard since Street Live Serenade. But at the same time, his plain spoken lyrics that we sort of love him for that idea that he can pack so much meaning into a plain spoken lyric not a dylan-esque lyric not a poetic lyric but a very plain english lyric he does that to perhaps his greatest effect on this album the most plainest insightful lyrics paired with the most lyrical lyrics that they don't pack the same gravitas but they're just beautiful to hear i find that i love when an artist does go personal don't get me wrong i've loved billy's songs over the years where he's written about the human condition in general, putting his brain in somebody else's life, thinking outside of himself. You know, so many artists have done that over the years as well, but there's something so vulnerable when an artist decides to go inward and really peel back that curtain a little bit. It just resonates, I think. However, I do feel that one thing Billy doesn't do as well as some other artists is talk about himself and still be relatable. Yeah, Um, but when we get to Great Wall of China, I will have a lot more to say about that. That continues the uh, series of songs about Billy's contract. And it's interesting. It's like not a decade goes by where there's not some major (laughs) disaster (laughs) that he's just trying to weather the storm and get through the other side. I think the only difference is this time around, he was tired. Let's back out of this philosophical headspace that I tend to get myself into at least. And let's put this into Mm -hmm. context of 1993. Four years out from Stormfront, two years out from Nevermind by Nirvana. Everything that kind of worked in the 80s is out. What we tend to forget is that after Nevermind came out, there was a quick vacuum before people figured out how to fill it. So you had like Blues Traveler and you had Spin Doctors. And yes, I know they were from the same scene, but I think they're good ones. Live is another band. Live. Yeah. These things could have gone a couple ways. So Billy's making an album in the middle of this. And as a result, it doesn't sound like a Billy Joel album. It doesn't sound like really like anything else that came out. And it's also the first album that's almost 100% non-Lords since Street Life Serenade. Obviously, on Stormfront, we lost Doug and Russell, and we only had Liberty and David Brown left. On this one, David Brown's gone, and we only have Liberty on one track. As we talk about with Brad Lee, and if you haven't listened to those two episodes, well, I listen to him on the regular, so I I highly recommend you go back and check those out. Uh, He talks a lot about the famed Shelter Island sessions where Billy Joel set up a studio off the coast of Long Island there and tried to record in what was essentially, what would you call it, a barn? It was, in fact, a boathouse. So it was an old, like, it was an old, like, shed basically. And so that wasn't working out. So Billy hooks up with Danny Korchmar, a hit maker. And uh, if you have to go back to our Shades of Grey episode so we don't have to rehash too much of this because that documentary goes over a lot of this uh, sort of expository stuff. And I refer to him as a Simpsons villain in that one. And I maintain that to this day. (laughs) For sure. For sure. Yeah. uh, Danny really does get cast as the villain in a lot of ways and perhaps unfairly so. He's a guy doing his job and it's his job to help the artist get what he wants and also do what he thinks is right as well. Everyone's got to make some choices and I, I get Billy wanting to try something different. I get Danny wanting to do something different and not get compared to the Phil Ramone records. And one big way to do that is to use your own guys. You know, if you just 
have all the same guys, but a different guy behind the board, there's going to be a lot more comparisons to the previous work, I think. Korchmar brings the proceedings to the Hit Factory in New York. So now they're out of the boathouse. They're in a slick studio. A lot of session guys on this. Tommy Burns stays around. Crystal stays around. Richie Cannata makes appearance on one song, but he's in a horn section, so you don't get like a classic 70s solo out of him. This is the first time Richie has been on a Billy record since Songs in the Attic in 1981. He left shortly after that. And the one last thing we have to talk about is the legal wranglings with Frank Weber. Stormfront as much of a powerhouse rock record as it seemed. Behind the scenes, Billy was going through some major turmoil at the time. This was when he was discovering the depth of the deception and the thievery at the hands of Frank Weber, realizing that, you know, all the money that he had made over the decade plus prior was gone in a blink. This was a guy he trusted wholeheartedly and he looked the other way, wasn't paying attention. And before he knew it, gone. And the Stormfront tour as a result became a marathon, essentially to try to make back all the money he lost. By the time that cycle was over and it was time to go back into album mode, he was exhausted. You know, back in the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. it was so standard for there to be an album every year, every two years. And now we started to see the separation between albums getting released. So I really think it was a combination of these tours getting longer and more intensive. Billy just getting more and more worn out on the thought of doing albums. Going into the bridge already, he was feeling like this. They had to put out Greatest Hits 1 and 2 with two new songs as a stopgap. He sounds tired. He sounds a little twisted up a couple times. More so than, you know, when he gets like pissed off on like Big Shot. It's like, yeah, it's a little Broadway. You know, he's putting it on for the song. This time it's like, that's kind of aggravated. <laughs> you can just hear it, the emotional toll in his voice. And just this is his therapeutic record of him just trying to work through all this anger and pain that he's been going into. And what we also learned along the way as well, it wasn't shortly after that, that Billy and Christy got a divorce. That indicates that things were starting to be strained in their relationship as well. So when you have all of that going on, it's going to take its toll and um, put a big stamp on the record that way. Of course, this didn't stop the record from reaching the top of the charts and garnering him a few awards. Granted, there was a big push with the single and Billy has always had great leadoff singles and there's something to be spoken about that. By this point in Billy's career, he is already a legacy act, already such a household name, already has such a built-in fan base and consumer base that a new pop record with the name Billy Joel on it is going to get a big jump out of the gate. To that point, he gets nominated for quite a number of awards, but only takes home one. So he's at the 94 Grammys. He's up for album of the year, record of the year, song of the year, and best pop local performance male. The only one he wins is actually the 1994 Billboard Century Award. And uh, I believe it was Tori Amos who presented him with that. I think they were in Australia. They were both on tour or something along those lines. And Billy was also up for an American Music Award in 94 for favorite adult contemporary artist. Again, he did not win that one as well. He's had a history of many nominations and few wins. I believe his last Grammy win was 1980 or 1981. Like they say, it's an honor just to be nominated, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> Like, right. <laughs> but probably the most notable thing out of this entire award season experience was the infamous Grammys performance of River of Dreams, which we've talked about before. But uh, this was the infamous time where prior in the night, they cut off Frank Sinatra as he's giving his acceptance speech. And Billy takes umbrage live on television. 
Yeah, so River of Dreams in America was the first album of his to, I believe, debut at number one. Really? So it was a number one album out of the gate, and um, it also hit number one in New Zealand, in Australia, and then we had number two in a three in a few other countries. It charted in about 20 countries around the world, which is just fantastic. We, you know, with Billboard, they do a year-end chart, which is you know, the top selling albums of the year. And even in the year end charts, even though the album came out in August, it still came in at number 23 in the year end charts in 1993. And the sales carried so much over into 1994 that it ended the 2004 year end charts at number 34. Let's talk about real quick, other albums that came out in 1993. You ready for this? Nirvana in Utero, Smashing Pumpkin's Siamese Dream, Doggy Style, Snoop Dogg, Enter the Wu-Tang, Cypress Hill Black Sunday, Pearl Jam Versus, Radiohead Pablo Honey, Counting Crows, August and Everything After. That was a huge album. Get a Grip by Aerosmith, which was kind of ridiculously a huge album. That was like another one we all had in seventh grade. (laughs) Sting, Ten Summoner's Tales. Pretty big one. Yeah, that was. Chaos AD by Sepultura. Ah. I'll just I'll just mention that. This 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 has no bearing on I guarantee you I've got that CD somewhere (laughs) in the other room. You know, that's a pretty heavy year. And that's a year of sea change, too. You know, Sting aside, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Primus came out, Wu-Tang, Snoop Dogg, Cypress Hill. Man, these were, this was the new guard, you know. So to come in number 23 against the kids, so to speak. Oh, and Music Box by Mariah Carey. As a legacy act, he really held his ground well. Because the gap between albums started growing so much, the surrounding contemporaries of the charting albums has changed so drastically. Now, keep in mind, the last album was 1989, October 89. Yeah. I don't have that list in front of me, but I'm sure right. you had your share of, you know, Warrant albums and, you know, bands like that. A lot of the hair bands that were still selling really well. Now on River of Dreams, as opposed to an album like Glass Houses, which had five players and a very small cast of production crew, there's quite the list of both production and musician credits on this album. Yeah, I mean, this is like a family tree, just this album. And that's not even counting like, you know, random backing vocals and stuff like that. You see more of this in albums now than you used to see back then. Yeah. Albums with like 20 producers and five writers and, <laughs> you know, one person played drums on one song and another song, another song. This is a trend, I think, that continues today, at least with the big albums for the most part. Let's do this. I've clearly Billy Joel's on everything. Let's mention Liberty real quick. He's only on Shades of Grey. Tommy Burns, uh, who's, you know, in the band, is on No Man's Land, Blonde Over Blue, Shades of Grey, and All About Soul. Leslie West of Mountain is on No Man's Land, Great Wall of China, and A Minor Variation. Skylar Deal, who was in the band at that point, right? Skylar joined for Stormfront, the album and the tour, and then was part of the Boathouse Sessions. Zachary Alford's drumming on almost everything here. Pretty much the whole first side, almost. Uh, no Man's Land, Great Wall of China, Blonde Over Blue, Minor Variation. Then he's back in on All About Soul. And River of Dreams. And yeah. then you have the last two songs, Famous Last Words and 2000 Years, the legendary Steve Jordan on drums. Zachary Alford's a great drummer. Steve Jordan's a great drummer. But, you know, listen carefully. You'll definitely hear where one takes over from the other. And Liberty, of course, you know, he just comes 
comes crashing in the middle of this album. <laughs> he does. Oh man, we got to get somebody that like plays something other than drums to start on these because we're just like, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. Now let's just talk about flames and paradiddles for twenty five minutes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, Richie Canada, as we said, uh, is on a minor variation. Crystal's on backing vocals on All About Soul and River of Dreams. She's also credited with the vocal arrangements on those as well, which is notable. Two other names you might recognize from the 80s era touring band. You had Frank Sims and George Sims, who did backing vocals on No Man's Land, Great Wall of China, and River of Dreams. And that other early 90s mainstay, Color Me Bad. His guest vocals on uh, All About Soul, as we've mentioned before. And quick Philly shout out, Joe and Phil Niccolo uh, do some mixing there based right, right outside the city. And then the wonderful orchestration work as well on this, uh, who is featured pretty prominently on the Shades of Grey documentary. But you have Ira Newborn, who did um, the orchestration oh, on yeah. Great Wall of China, All About Soul, Lullaby, and The River of Dreams. And then on the production side, obviously Danny Korchmar produced nine of the ten songs. And Billy is credited as the producer for Shades of Grey. And Dave Thorner is the associate producer on Shades of Grey as well. And then Joe Nicolo is the co-producer on River of Dreams. And a couple other notable names. You had uh, Don DeVito as A&R. Bill Zampino, who is one of Billy's oldest friends. He was the production coordinator. Several engineers involved. You had Carl Glansville, Joe Nicolo, Phil Nicolo as primary engineers. Assistant engineers included Dan Hetzel, Brian Viverts. Dick Grabelny, Jay Healy, Bradshaw Lee, Bob Thrasher, Dave Wilkerson as uh, recording credits. And then mixing, Nico Bolas, Dave Thorner, and Joe Nicolo. And the album was originally mastered by Ted Jensen at Sterling Sound. If you own a record that was released from 1985 to 2005, it's a pretty good chance that uh, Ted Jensen was uh, the uh, mastering engineer. And then we had Art and Commerce by Jeff Schock, the late Jeff Schock was a close friend of Billy's, the tour manager on the Turnstiles tour, and remained in the fold up until his uh, untimely death, unfortunately, a few years ago. But Jeff Schock mm. always had been involved in Billy's career. And then obviously the cover artwork by uh, Christy Brinkley. All right, we ready to do this? Oh, I've been waiting all day. Oh, I'm here we all day go, to go, baby. Check my check. <laughs> you know, this never made it into the episode, and I don't know if it'll make it in this time, but when we did Street Life, I, in the middle of it, I had to admit that like, I had just done mushrooms a few days before and I was still feeling it. So I had everything to say. Right. Right. <laughs> this time, this time I haven't, but I've, I kind of got there a little going through the whole album. <laughs> My notes got a little poetic at one point. Uh, we'll see what makes it. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> All right. Kids can't listen to this one. All right, we start with No Man's Land, and uh, I'm just going to say something horrible. Uh, I am not a fan, I don't think, of Tommy Burns' work on this album. I, you know what? I love him on uh, Last Play at Shea. I think he was a little too perfect on this. I busted a guitarist's balls one time. I was like, you're playing too melodically perfect. It sounds like Footloose. You know, throw, throw a weird note in there, right. you know. <laughs> and I think Tommy really, really stayed in the box, because I, I, I was trying to pin it on Danny. I want to be like, oh, listen to Danny playing all snooty-like. And I'm like, ooh, no, I looked at the track listings and everything. I was like, no, I'm pretty sure that was that was Tommy, mm -hmm. just based on the tone and everything. But yeah. what I will blame Danny Korchmar for, they sounded so obviously stitched together that right. it, it kind of made it sterile, even if the riffs were halfway decent. 
And part of it too, for me, is the guitars just don't cut through well enough. The choice of the, the tones and the, you know, the sound of the guitars just don't jump out to me on a lot of the songs. It sounds like somebody was almost doing a David Brown impression, but wasn't doing a good David Brown impression. There were a few songs here that screamed for his tone mm -hmm. and his sort of 70s baldiness. I usually love this song, but it's not a good one to sit and listen to on headphones with your, with your fingers on your chin going, hmm, you know. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. You know, go listen to No Man's Land on Saturday Night Live or No Man's Land when he did it on Letterman. To me, those are yeah. better performances than you get on this recorded version. First of all, we've talked about before, when we did the covers episode, this came up, how back in the 70s and through the 80s, and especially things that Phil Ramone had a piece of, they used dynamics to great effect, where the band played louder or softer at different points. And that gave way over the years to everybody sort of playing at the same level, and they're taking elements out or putting them in for that dynamic effect. And if you listen closely, the No Man's Land, you hear a lot of nuts and bolts. You hear a lot of this goes in, this comes out. This goes in, this comes out. Mm -hmm. And I don't like that. And, and to the point about the live ones, the big difference you'll notice here is Billy's vocals. Now, I love the stuffy nose vocals on the on the verses here. Like, with their bobos and their balance, like their Vs, dude. Uh, what do you, you know, it's very, yeah, it's very nasally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it. I like it. It's, it's a thing. It's, it's definitely a thing. When he when he goes up, you know, this morning's paper says on Neighbors or whatever, it's so obviously a different take. It's so obviously he did that later, which is so unusual for him because as we know, he used to record all those vocals live. Mm -hmm. And when you hear him do it live, there's not as much of a difference in the tone between the, the, the verses and the pre-chorus. Absolutely, yeah, they're clearly from a different day even. Just everything about them is so different. Now maybe they decided to do that by design to give them that separation and sound, but certainly atypical from what he was doing, like you said. It definitely breaks up the flow of it. You know, you don't notice when you're just uh, listening to it, but if you sit down and like, yeah, I mean, The Stranger, 52nd Street, Turnstiles, you can sit and listen to those albums. You know, you can't with No Man's Land. Like, these codas go on for a minute. Mm -hmm. And if you pay attention to them, you get bored. When I love how aggravated he is all through this song. This morning's paper says our neighbor's in a cocaine bust. What a great line. Yeah. Just everything about that line is freaking perfect. You know, just the, the syntax, the choice of consonants, down to the syllable. It's perfect. <laughs> And this is the first example, sort of, of this dichotomy of flights of lyrical fancy and very down-to-earth um, mm -hmm. lines. Because the next one's a clunker. Lots more to read about Lolita and the suburban lust. Yeah. That's a horrible line. It sucks. There was no liberty to tell him to rewrite it. Yeah, yeah. He didn't get a drumstick thrown at him on that one. Yeah, to me, like, that was... One of the unsung hero parts of Liberty was that he was the guy who could tell Billy that. But I love the modern, then modern phraseology. You get franchise, cable, top 40, low supply, high demand. Very clunky words, yeah. but very appropriate for the song and of the era. And I think they were used well, even though like we had that one clunker line we talked about. Is this Billy's 90s version of Big Yellow Taxi? Ooh, because you know I'm a Joni Mitchell fan. Okay, all right. 
Uh, don't it always seem to go. <laughs> right. But it's just basically, you know, the frustration of corporate America and commercialism taking over nature. I mean, especially the Long Island Billy Joel knew. Shucking oysters and such. Yep. Now, let's also remember, this guy is not living in uh, Valley Stream at this point. He's not in Levittown. Pretty sure he's out in the Hamptons. But he does a good job of, of capturing the spirit of what someone his age that lives in a, a flailing suburb mm-hmm. is going to say. He, he hits that, you know? Right. Uh, and there's, there's poetry to that. There's that idea that you can use these clunky words to affect because that's what the song calls for. That's what the character in the song calls for. Yeah. This character doesn't show up again on this album. Mm-hmm. Other characters do. Sure. And this is how this character speaks. How do you feel about this as an opener? Oh, I like it. Mm-hmm. It really sets a gloomy tone, you know, for the first half of this thing. It's the one where he sounds the most twisted on an album where he's very often bent out of shape. I couldn't imagine anything else being first. What about you? Yeah, you know, I'm the same way, you know, and it was a great opener live too cuz this is what he opened the tour with as well. Just a great drive and a great punch right out of the gate just to kind of get your attention. And it sets the tone of the record for the most part. And looking through these track listing, I, I can't imagine another one being in the one slot. Even as hard as Great Wall of China comes in, it doesn't have that punch. Right. So speaking of Great Wall of China, let's jump into this one. Yep. Song number two. <laughs> Love the intro. Love the Our Newborn string arrangements. With a lot of these strings, just the moods they create really give me a Scandinavian Skies kind of vibe. Something about the movement of the strings. I can pair these two songs together and I love that about it. My least favorite component is the verses, like the hey, hey. The verses don't move me as much, but I love the chorus. This is where the dichotomy of this album comes out perfectly. The verses are very clunky. In No Man's Land, we talk about these words that were clunky that worked very well. In this one, it doesn't work quite as well. And I think part of the reason is it's too personal on something that's not relatable. Your average Billy Joel fan has never been built out of millions of dollars. Right. There's nothing for us to latch onto, and it almost feels as if he said, F it, I'm just going to say what I feel like saying, yeah. right? And so it's a little clunky, it's a little angular. When you listen to the Shelter Island demos, you realize that Liberty was getting mm-hmm. really funky on this and really breaking stuff up, and a lot of that disappeared. And I don't actually disagree too much with that. I bet you a lot of that would have gotten smoothed out anyway. It's a little sterile. The funk is just a little too watered down. You get a little bit of bass pop because you feel like Danny Korchmar was uh, snapping his gum and being like, yeah, put that up in the mix. Yeah, we need something. We need there. a little you funk know, element like, here. Bonk, bonk, you know, very token almost. And then 
This chorus opens up and it just embraces you. For everything you couldn't picture in the verses because it was so literal, the idea of two guys looking over the countryside is so immediately palpable and visible. It's so universal and it's so bittersweet and it's, it's so um, impressionistic. We could have been standing on the Great Wall of China. And then the line that follows, if you only had a little more faith in me, that part there is the most universal he got when talking about being betrayed by a friend. That is something that everyone can relate to. I love the on the waterfront quote. Probably was a mi real middle-aged thing to do. You know, he loved The Godfather, and, and he talked about how they quoted that movie incessantly when it came out. On the waterfront's another uh, Marlon Brando, yep. and it just fits so perfect. Could have had class, he could have been a contender. The way he puts it in there is just great. This is where the Beatles influence really comes in. Real Jeff Lynne, George Harrison. Yes, I know Jeff Lynne was in the Beatles. Yeah, like Wilburys. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know what I'm getting. Yeah, at. yeah. That's what we're hearing a lot on the good guitars on this. Then there's like some like weird like hum thing that sounds like a line six amp and you're like, you stop that. You stop that right, <laughs> right now. Right, right, right. My note here real quick was uh, David Brown or get the fuck out. I tell you, one thing I love guitar wise on this, Near the end, before the big outro, there's a breakdown and everything drops out. And then there's this just one little guitar line going. Oh, yeah. And then Zach kind of comes in, builds it back up, and then it goes back into the intro. That little guitar business right there, that I love. That nice little arpeggio right there just broke it up for a second and gave way to a feeling of resolve that's not quite there yet, but sort of hints at it. Sort of that first break in the ugly. Now the minute long coda, once again, it does not lend itself to long listens as it should. Were this 15 years ago, we'd have had a kick-ass saxophone solo. Instead, Billy uses this as a time to do a very buried spoken word bit where everything I've heard suggests that he's talking directly about Frank, but everything is so buried in the mix that you cannot pick out a word he's saying. Do have to note that Zach gets off some nice fills in the middle of this, including I'm going to say that little crossover hi-hat thing is a nod to Born to Run. But I would have gone for a sax solo. I don't <laughs> care if it wouldn't have sounded good. Like, Richie's in the house. Right. Let him rip one. Next, we've got Blonde Over Blue. this song hands down the best on this album this is where danny did the best job with the arranging and production style uh, and it's no wonder i think that they focused on this one for the shades of gray documentary Big all time. the the horse playing jackassery that goes on in the production it comes together the right way on this song this disparate elements thing that he keeps pulling in makes sense the guitar actually sounds like somebody played the guitar the entire way through and if they didn't they actually made it sound like one live take. And when we watched the footage, it seemed like they were playing this one as a band. And this one, like you said, is the one that feels the most like a band in a room, really rocking, as Corch Bar put it. It feels certainly cohesive throughout. And you know, this song too, it's the return of the amazing Billy Joel Bridge. I need your inspiration tonight. 
because this has been missing. Mm-hmm. So far, there's, there's like no good B-sections on this album. Yep. It's half the damn problem. Everything's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, coda. There's no vocal there going on, but it provides the perfect relief from the verses and choruses. And it takes it into this whole nother place for just, what, 10, 12 seconds uh, before going back into the intro. Gosh, it is just perfect. The chord choices there, amazing. And it's all chords there. You know, Billy Joel rests his B-sections and bridges on the melody. And this is a much more sophisticated move. It's not Beethoven, it's not Stevie Wonder, but it, there's something to that. There's something to that cadence that's really good and, and it's not a whole lot of love riff. It's not a Zeppelin riff, but it, it works as a riff uh, the way it flows through the chords and the voicings. Do we want to think about the alternate universe in which all that like heavy-ass guitar work was David Brown and it's Russell playing that acoustic, the ovation? Get yeah. the shoulders going. I kind of want to commission that. This was a song where its infancy began during the An Innocent Man writing sessions in 1983. Right, because it was attached to Uptown Girl. You you had played me that for the first time. I had never heard that before. Yeah, let's put it another little clip of it right here. Blonde over blue. Uh, let's see. That was written... That part of it is from something else. It was actually, Uptown Girl had that in it. But before it was Uptown Girl, it went. But then that became Uptown Girl. I used that part in Uptown Girl. you describe this if i said to you you know that effect of a slightly out of tune violin that's supposed to be playing in an old haunted house you know embryo on uh, master of reality yeah by uh, sabbath yeah like that sort of effect that's what that melody is without the rusty violin what's so funny is to think that it was ever paired against the uh whoa, 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 yeah. part of uptown girl <laughs> to me they are like worlds apart like and it even sounds funny on that demo there that they ever were together at one point in time. Clearly that kind of melody would have stuck out like a sore thumb on an innocent man. Quick practical question. Did he have access to Phil's archives? Because we know that that's what they used to do. He used to have like those little riffs and ideas tucked away. Yeah, or maybe just, you know, in the process, he was given all the work tapes, you know, like they would dub him copies and you know had cassettes. As he was starting the writing process, if he would just kind of rediscover bits and pieces that didn't make previous records and see if anything rose to the top. What's Billy's memory like or, or anyone else? Do they have to go through the tapes? Or do you think some stuff just sticks with them and they're like, one of these days, man, this is going to make it in? Yeah. Is that something that was always bouncing around in his head and it just found its place finally? Or, you know, what was that process? The thing with Billy 
when he writes about depression or when he writes from a depressive point, he very often becomes withdrawn in a very specific way. When I'm deep inside of me, don't be too concerned. I won't ask for nothing when I'm gone. You know, really pulls to that idea that like, he doesn't want to bother anybody with it. Just just leave him be. It's going to pass, yeah. you know. And slightly by contrast, let's say, we now know Bruce Springsteen gets massively depressed, like can't get out of bed depressed. You don't hear that show up in his lyrics. Bruce Springsteen gets himself out of it by writing three albums worth of music and releasing one. But uh, I love um, In Hell, There's a Big Hotel Where the Bar Just Closed and the Windows Never Opened. Okay, so that's very, very fanciful. Let's go the opposite way and go working class. And the TV works, but the clicker is broken. Clicker is such a by the 90s middle-aged thing to say. Give me the clicker. Where's the clicker? And dad used to say that all the time, usually in where did you put put the damn thing? You know, and then he says later, I look and I write my book and I have my say and I draw conclusions. This is now the pivot into internal because no man's land is all external. Great Wall of China is right in the middle. The verses are all ripped from the headlines Mm -hmm. and the chorus is... A little more universal. Very impressionistic. Right. Yeah. And then this one is all internal. And that carries over until almost the end of the album. So we go from what I think is the best song on the album to what is, I'm going to say easily the worst. We're talking about a minor variation, which is track four. It just goes nowhere for me. It's sort of the worst take on white late 80s corporate blues. (laughs) Well, and that's the crazy thing is he's got an incredible amount of soul and blues in him. Yeah. And he can do it well. Right. But it's so sterile here. There's no big difference between the verse and the chorus. It's it's the most level because it's just drum roll for the dad joke, a minor variation (laughs) through the whole thing. (laughs) I knew it. But conceptually what works about it is that he's gone from aggravated to wistful to depressed and you know what man maybe this is just the downest you get when you have no emotion left right when you stop even arguing with people you just sit there with your cigarette and your coffee and you just take it how you doing today hon yeah you want to talk no this is the low point this is apathy emotionally of the album yes I don't like to completely bag on a song without finding a couple nice moments and there are some here that caught my ear throughout it obviously i do love having richie playing on a track again and the horns there remind me a little bit of what he was doing on the title track of stormfront in a few moments you know it's nice to have some sax again on billy's song there are some nice guitar licks going on here and there and i do like the hammond organ the electric guitar on this is panned hard left which is not common for billy stuff i've seen other bands and other artists do stuff like that but Billy tends not to pan things too hard one way or the other, aside from, you know, the vocal on Where's the Orchestra. Lyrically, musically, just all the way around, it just felt so flat. And yeah, yeah, I wonder why he chose that over, say, You Picked a Real Bad Time, which by no means is the best of his work. But that song, at least at points, had a little more life to it. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's because I've been listening to this record for almost 30 years, but I couldn't hear You Picked a Real Bad Time on it, though. It makes for a cool B-side. It does, it does. I think you have to accept minor variation as a part of the story you don't like, but a part of the story nonetheless. Now, after uh, a minor variation finally winds down, we get into the thunderous drum intro from One Liberty DeVito on track number five, which is Shades of Grey, which uh, is what closes out side one on the record and cassette. (laughs) 
Now, again, we've we've identified because they said it was supposed to be like a cream song and it's sweet wine, right. as far as anyone can tell. The the bop bars and everything else. It, by far, it's the biggest sounding song on the record. Yeah, this sounds like the boathouse or a boathouse, like we know what the boathouse sounds like. But yeah, you could tell that this wasn't in a in a hermetically sealed studio for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of boom to it. Once again, looking at the at the drumming, compare Zach Alford's very stripped down two and four grooves, and then when 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 you hear him start filling, you can see you know what he's capable of. Certainly, listen for Lib's right foot. He's got that John yep. Bonham like footwork going on again, and it's always down in the mix. But that right foot's doing a whole lot of work down there. Believe it or not, they actually did re-record Shades of Grey at the Hit Factory with Zach Elford and the other band. And I've heard it with the Hit Factory version of Shades of Grey. And it sounds so sterile. The big drums are gone. All the cool fills in the beginning, totally gone. And they try to add that pop and funk element. I don't know who made the final call because... They did a completed version of it, but I'm very glad they stuck with this Boathouse version of Shades. There's a lot of moments on this album where Billy does these little vocalizations and whatnot, and I don't dig them on this album, man. And I, I really pin it on the vocals weren't live. And, you know, so when he, like, does, the, like, the, the little cat screams or whatever you got there, it sounds very canned because it probably was. He probably was in a booth doing it. When he says, and the only people I fear are those who never have doubt, he teeters almost to the point of, like, being off the note. That was so genuine and so much more authentic than any other flight he takes performance-wise. I love that element of imperfection there where it was going more for the performance than the perfection. And I love the fact that he almost breaks there and they keep it. This is where it starts to blur. I mean, that's the theme of the song. You know, in No Man's Land Mm -hmm. and Blonde Over Blue, there are these things that are just so fragmented. It's this or this or this or this. It's either this hard-hitting angular verse or this flowing chorus it's either these very clunky words or these very poetic words shades of gray here coming out of a minor variation is when things are really just getting mixed in and you feel like now you're going to get somewhere because you you know at least you're starting to see a bigger picture you're at least there's this feeling of acknowledgement that you don't know everything you know is kind of the point i like tommy's guitar work on this quite a bit yeah this one's better i like those squeals he gets and things like that they sound a little strangled in a good way they don't sound canned yeah. or overwrought one of the guitar parts I really dig is the guitar parts going on in the pre-chorus. Almost elements of Photograph by Def Leppard. Because at the time, I was way into Def Leppard. I'm still into Def Leppard, but Photograph was my jam. I loved it. And so that guitar part in the chorus was like embedded in my brain back then. And so I remember the first time hearing Shades of Grey, I'm like, oh yeah, that kind of reminds me of a little Def Leppard. One more thing that caught my ear guitar wise, the guitar parts in the verses. It's just the quarter notes going on. But it gives me that Roxanne all for Lena vibe. Ooh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that, that, yeah, yeah. So now we're going to flip the record or turn the cassette over to side two. We're going to go with song number six, which is all about soul. Yeah, this is, I remember the first time hearing this song, seriously, in like seventh grade, or going into seventh grade. 
saying to myself, I don't like this song right now. I will like it when I'm older. Like it was just too bittersweet. And it was like, I don't know what's going on. It's just too sad. And I can't, I can't hang anything on it. And when I get older, it'll make sense. And it did. I've gotten so used to hearing the remix, which was the single version and the Greatest Hits Volume 3 version. This album version is so dry in comparison. It's just a little bigger sounding, a little more reverb going on. The background vocals are higher in the mix on the remix. Another song I do like the guitar work going on, on the verses especially. This is a song I could almost have heard on side two of Stormfront. I can and I can't. I couldn't imagine a production this lush on Stormfront. Stormfront was a little drier, a little, not even drier, just brittler. I'm more speaking material wise, not necessarily like the production treatment may have been weird, but just like they took out Win in Rome and put this in its place near State of Grace. If they did that, that second half of that album would have been nothing but sad songs. After Stormfront, that would have been Leningrad, State of Grace, all about soul. And then, and so it goes like, wow, that would have been a but of a second song. that kind of works because it's about like the storm and then the devastation after the storm. I could see that. To me, musically, it almost fits better than Win in Rome, which to me is just kind of odd there. Well, it's kind of odd. It's an odd song. <laughs> right. It's not so much a Billy Joel song. It is a, it is a uh, 80s TV theme song. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I would pair uh, Win in Rome more with like Christy Lee. Okay. So does it go... All about soul, state of grace, or state of grace, all about soul, and then into and so it goes. I think it's got to be all about soul first because there's the connection there, and it's fading in state of grace, and then it goes. <laughs> yeah, because all about soul is a little more still about the love and still we're together, and just how amazing this woman is. And state of grace is a little more of like I fear I'm losing you, and then and so it goes is I've lost you. One other thing on All About Soul, I really like Billy's vocal delivery on the line, specifically, It's All About Soul. Just the tenderness of it almost reminds me of a younger Billy. It's all about soul. It's all about joy that comes out of sorrow. It's all about soul. And I also found it just odd like we touched on briefly earlier that color me bad was brought in to sing some of the background vocals the background vocals and the the chorus vocals especially in this version are so buried in the mix that it could be anybody Mm -hmm. i never understood that yeah because it wasn't publicized which you you thought like a Mm -hmm. crossover with a contemporary pop vocal group would be i wonder if crystal just brought them in since she did the vocal arrangement just maybe she knew them or maybe she was like you know i just hear them on it Mm -hmm. something to that effect from time to time, it's like maybe they're in one of the other studios working on a record and, you know, they're around at the same time. So it's like, oh, we need some more background vocals. Well, they're here. Let's bring them in to sing on this chorus. You know, that could have been something like that, too. Well, we talked about a lot of differences between the choruses and the verses where the verses are often angular, sort of almost funky, but not actually funky. And the choruses open up a whole lot and they're very flowing. And that probably reaches its peak in Blonde Over Blue. And then, you know, a minor variation is very flat level the whole time. And you take those two things, I think, and you think about them in All About Soul. And All About Soul just hits like a brick and stays there. Just like minor variation, there's really not a lot of distinction between the verse and the chorus. And it works so much better here. There's so much bittersweet and it's just one block of it. This one takes me to a really strong emotional place now. This was 30 years almost in the making. Listening to it closer, 
you know, the last couple of years and especially recently preparing for this, it struck me. I'm like, this is a very sweet song. I don't know. Something about it just struck me a little differently. It's a very adult song. We've talked about before that Billy wrote older than he was. But even when you were younger, you could get a feel for it. You at least knew that he was being adult about it. Lullaby, which is track seven, or the second song on side two, you can feel Billy singing to Alexa. I can just picture him at the side of her bed singing this to her, you know, as she's asking him these questions about life and what happens when you die. Gosh, what a beautiful response from a father trying to find the right words to say. This one is where it becomes both things at once. It's both plain spoken as much as it is illustrative. To me, it's a lyric that your seven-year-old daughter could understand. It is literally how you're going to speak to a kid. And it sounds like a parent that works all day who doesn't happen to write lyrics and music for a living, you know. He really accesses it. He's coming at it from a dad perspective instead of a songwriter perspective. Originally, the Goodnight My Angel melody belonged in River of Dreams. So there's a recording of River of Dreams with that element, Frankenstein, right in the middle of it. I think as a result, these two songs have been forever paired together. The arrangement on Lullaby is perfect, though. Where we were saying before, the old records made use of dynamics, where the newer records made use of bringing parts in and out. This is all dynamics, and this is all in Ira's hand, literally. The small ensemble that's playing with Billy accentuates the music just right, works around the piano and the lyrics without getting in the way, and it sits in the mix so well that it just complements everything just perfectly. Of the Shades of Grey documentary, this is one of my favorite moments of it, where you hear Ira and Billy going through it. I love the lack of ego out of Billy. Ira suggests that he leave a pinky out or leave one note out of the chord that he was playing in a certain position. And Billy's like, yeah, if you think it'll be better. Like he's he was all about what was right for the song and wasn't, you know, the kind of guy who's like, no, 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 you need to work around whatever I'm doing. So now we're going to move on to the title track, the first single, and song number eight, or if you're on vinyl or cassette, song three on side two, and that's The River of Dreams. Before we go into this, I do want to point out what a difference between this version and the Shelter Island version. The Shelter Island version made me double check the release date of River of Dreams and the premiere of The Lion King. The rhythm of the Shelter Island one sounds like I just can't wait to be king. Walking 
Like, I wonder if Elton had a copy of the demo. You're right. It was probably done around the same time. So this one starts off with the famous uh, percussion loop that fades in at the beginning coming out of Lullaby. Hey, do we know if that's a loop or if that was played live through the whole thing? I feel like the, the percussion is a loop, mainly because in the Shades of Grey documentary, there's a spot where Billy's working on vocals and you hear it playing throughout the entire song, even when there's breaks. Uh, good point. So you know what's funny is when I was a kid and I was listening to this, you know, I had no idea it was a gospel thing. I didn't have the vocabulary of gospel. It sounded more like Graceland. Like Paul yeah, Simon. that's kind of where I was at with it too. Can a white dude make, it, make a song like this now? Is somebody gonna cry foul? I'm not that guy and I don't wanna be, but I have to, it begs the question. You know, like, can you- It would be a finer needle the thread. I mean, it wasn't an affectation because, you know, he didn't sing in a different voice, but he definitely had a gospel yeah. choir going on behind him. I don't think he could, like, kind of do that now. Like, not in, a, not in a real weird cancel way, but just in a nobody would go for it kind of way. I don't think anyone would, no. Worth noting. I love the line, now I'm tired and I don't want to walk anymore. So this is a, another perfect example of a line that's plain spoken, but like just mm -hmm. so effective. Just hits the nail on the head. There's, it doesn't have to be poetic. It doesn't have to be anything special. It's just, it's just right there and it's perfect. You know, he never reaches for the lyrics and he never dumbs down the lyrics. He really rides it right in the middle. I mean, so much of the first half of the album has this almost like violent vacillation between the verses and the chorus. And by now they're really coming together. Like minor variation, you know, you start hearing it not vacillate as much, but it's just, it's actually not interesting. Uh, All About Soul is <laughs> a little more interesting, uh, but this one just stays right there. And lyrically, he's right in the middle of the whole time. I remember on the Shades documentary too, him working on the the vocal for it. And you can hear him reaching quite a bit on the, the choruses there. That was the first time that I remember noticing that like his voice was deepening to where something like that, that would have been like, super easy seven years prior it was a little harder for him to get up there yeah but you know what at the same time when you listen to the shelter island demos again you know in particular blonde over blue and i think great wall of china he's hot he's in a higher register it was a conscious choice to go deeper and breathier on a lot of these songs so production wise when we do these i like to listen to the albums on a stereo setup and i also like to listen to these with headphones you hear a lot of different mixing and panning choices that may not be so obvious when you've just got a pair of speakers in front of you. On this one, you've got the percussion, the drum loops, the whole bit, and then you also have a live drum kit, you know, with Zach playing. As far as all of the percussion and drum elements, the live drums are the most minimal back in the mix part of it all. The drums are hard panned on this song. The live drums are all the way on the left channel here. The drum set group is not difficult, but it just has a very well-placed open hi-hat, and at least when Liberty plays it live, he hits the floor top. He takes care of that part. I don't know if that was an overdub. I feel like that was a bigger drum overdubbed. All of it blended really well. It's amazing with, with how layered the percussion elements are to it, how well it all translated live. Yeah, really streamlined and came out nicely. I mean, you know, having Crystal on, on stuff makes a huge difference, of course. But I think there's like a weird splice around 315 on the outro, on the coda. Something weird happens, at least on the version I had. It sounds like maybe they looped it or maybe they use like a different take or something. Yeah, I noticed you know. that as well. And I also noticed the spot coming out at the end as well. Um, it was about the 351 mark, so even closer to the end. You hear like a crackling uh -huh. distortion in one of the channels. I do have strong memories of buying this cassette single because I believe the retail single came out the month prior. And I remember buying it at Tape World 
Now there's a dated <laughs> store name. <laughs> the 12 Oaks Ball. I remember it very specifically. I remember the hype and excitement that he had a new album coming out. And I remember buying this single that summer and just was super excited that there was something new finally. And one thing that isn't so common, this song is in the eighth spot on the album. Quite often the the singles are early on or mid side one. Well, I think that speaks to the idea of it being sort of a secret concept album. It makes sense where it sits. Clearly there's that clip in Shades Gray again where he's, talking with somebody on the phone about sequencing. So he had a lot of control over that. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if some artists have a lot less leeway and less control and may have things like album sequencing forced upon them a little more than somebody like a Billy Joel. What's notable then too is that he was thinking about the order after the fact, at least to some degree. You know, we don't know if that was after Shelter Island, although we're going to assume that he's now talking about the Hit Factory sessions. You know, so you wonder if the theme emerged or if he kind of knew it going in, but a couple in the middle could have been moved around. You know, could Shades of Grey have been further up or something like that and still made sense? Yeah, you know, it feels like it should be the middle of the album, but it's it's Mm -hmm. not. It is. It's eighth. Maybe because we all started skipping a minor variation, but that's (laughs) neither here nor there. (laughs) The time when albums were shifting to primarily CDs. I mean, granted, cassettes did continue to get sold through the 90s, but cassettes sales dwindled drastically. By 1993, hardly anything was getting pressed on vinyl anymore. Um, and But in the age of vinyl and cassettes, the school behind sequencing was a little different. Not only did you need to have the entire album flow in a certain way, but you also had many components, a side A and a side B, which also needed to sequence well you know to that point as well around this time is when we start seeing 75 minute albums billy joel as we know you know put everything he had on the album all the time he only goes 49 minutes so after the emotional break we get with river of dreams we've got just two songs left on the album that's two thousand years and famous last words if we're going on this concept album sort of thing an emotional journey and jack may be on mushrooms (laughs) You get this feeling that he's now <laughs> reaching down even further beyond himself and into some some manner of archetype. In the beginning, there was the cold and the night, prophets and angels gave us the fire and the light. Man was triumphant. Armed with the faith and the will But even the darkest ages couldn't kill You feel like he's reaching back further into like kind of past his psyche or something, you know, now he's coming up with a 2,000 year perspective, mm-hmm. I guess you would say. And it's so much more relaxed even than River of Dreams. It is. He sounds younger vocally on this song than anything else. Really harkens back to his old voice. When he goes high, there's no straining. Uh, It sounds like when he used to go high. Much more comfortable, younger sounding vocal. I really like this song quite a bit. Uh, And this was the first of two songs that Steve Jordan played drums on. So, you know, bringing the different rhythm section in there gives it a whole different flavor. And Steve Jordan has a very signature sound to himself as well. 
And yeah, and I wrote too that this to me felt more like a classic Billy Joel song in the way that his vocal delivery could have been on an early album in the 70s. I mean, lyrically, right. not at all, but vocally, vocally yeah. yeah. So let's say, you know, I was talking about dichotomies and, and these one thing or the other so much on this album. You get these this and that's in the first verse, right? Cold and the night, prophets and angels, fire and the light, faith and the will. They're not the same things, but they're not opposites now. I guess, they, and they're not complementary either. It's not like a yin and yang thing where one fills in the other. They sort of complement, but not really. It's more of a uh, with one comes the other. You know, with night comes the cold. Uh, with fire comes light. And those go different ways because it's the, the thing that follows, the thing that comes first, the cold and the night. And then the other way it goes, fire comes first and then the light as it's written. And then Prophets and Angels is in the middle of that. And if you really want to dig on it, you wonder if that's intentionally vague as to which one came first. Faith and the will, same kind of thing. Very one follows the other sort of thing. And I was thinking about this too. It's been a long time and now I'm with you. It can't be about a chick. You, you don't write a song like this and it's not a woman. We're going to assume because he's at most Jewish and more often figured as an atheist or at least agnostic. So he's not talking about Jesus, even though we're talking about 2,000 years. And then I thought to myself, what if it's not him saying it? What if it's something or someone saying it to him? That something finally emerged, that he finally made this breakthrough, and he's being spoken to. Going through the lyrics as well, this is our moment here at the crossroads of time. We hope our children carry our dreams down the line. And it's just so funny because in the first verse, it's a this and that and this and that and this and that. And now he's back to a question, curse or a blessing. And we're back to that dichotomy again. Prophets and angels come back. Science and poetry. That's an interesting juxtaposition right there. Fire and the light. That comes back. And now it's one thing is certain. Nothing can hold back the night. And, you know, I, I always sort of dismiss this song. Again, you know, it's something you couldn't get into when you were that young, you know, to really get a piece of it you know he was being highfalutin but it didn't say you know again it doesn't sound highfalutin in a weird way it's still very plain spoken as mystical as it is i think even at the time i was like oh oh okay yeah 2000 years because we're almost at the year 2000 and you're doing that weird taking thing. stock yeah. if you thought that was gauche yeah wait until like you know backstreet boys puts out millennium no that was will smith and uh i don't know back one of them had like a millennium ba i know i think they both did the backstreet boys had millennium i think will yeah. smith had willennium Oh, that, I'm sorry, yes, Willennium, yes, yes, yes. How could I forget? I think we've kind of talked about how prescient this song was in, in some ways. And it's so funny now that we listen to it. When you look at how much the world changed after September 11th, you know, there was something to say about something's going to change at this 2000 mark, you know, arbitrary mm -hmm. as it is. Certainly things have happened before that. Thinking about this in 2021, it's like, yeah, I'm not feeling that optimistic, pal. Like, you know, I don't see a lot of these great things right. happening. But so funny that even for all the, the optimism and the brightness in this song, the one thing that's certain is nothing can hold back the night. So is that like a darkest before the dawn kind of thing? Is that the faith of it? That like, is it so prescient as to say, yeah, you're going to have to go through the night. Like we all are, you know, but like this is what's on the other side. In that same way, Lullaby is, is very poignant without being poetic. This is all just very written out. There's nothing vague about it. There's nothing very literary about it, but it it's, feels very genuine and it doesn't feel hackneyed or, you know, on index cards shuffled together. The one thing that always stuck out to me, too, is the harpsichord or keyboard theme that goes on throughout it. It reminds me so much. There's an old, like, I don't know if it's like a folk song or whatever, but 
called There's a Hole in My Bucket. There's a hole in the bucket, dear Liza, dear Liza. There's a hole in the bucket, dear Liza. There's a hole. You know, he mentions on the Shades of Grey documentary, at one point he's like, I hear a Celtic thing. And it's assumed that he's talking about something in River of Dreams, but like, that's really what it is on here. You know, it's got that pastoral, ancient sort of feel. What do you think of the ending of this? That's where I looked up. I'm like, that can't still be Zach. It doesn't have the same feel. And sure enough, this is Steve Jordan now. Now, this is right out of the Ringo Starr playbook. Those drum fills are perfectly in line with what happens in these lyrics and also in Lullaby and in a few other places on the album, wherein they are not difficult to play, but you got to play them just right. Strawberry Fields Forever is probably like one of the best examples of it. You also hear them on America by Simon and Garfunkel. I think is the biggest aping of them to great effect. And this is closer to... It was kind of this atmospheric thing, those triplet feel, that, that swung kind of feel over it. Yeah, I mean, there's something about that, man. The triplet's a very old, very strong kind of thing, you know? Comes up in a lot of different ways. There's no B section again, but we are dealing again with that long coda, but it sounds so much more organic now. It doesn't fulfill that youthful, you gotta, you gotta swing for the fences. It's got a very wise, you don't have to be swinging for the fences, man. You just gotta say something that's true. We see this again, in a way, in uh, Famous Last Words. After all we've lived through after 2,000 years, I, I think back to Great Wall of China. Like, we could have been standing on the Great Wall of China. There's something about, like, we could have been standing together or all we've been through. Some sort of kindred spirit thing. Like, you know, like he says, like, he ran into Frank Weber years later, and he was like, I, I, I can't hold the animosity. Like, I said, hello. That was it. People thought I should have punched him or, you know, however he says it. You know, people were surprised that it wasn't a confrontation. But it's this thing of like all we've lived through. It's a very communal sort of thing, a very empathetic sort of thing, a very, you know, you may have given me the, a royal screw, but hey, man, we're all suffering through something after all we've lived through, you know. And that takes us into the last song on River of Dreams, which is song number 10, uh, which is Famous Last Words. Steve Jordan sounding a lot more like Liberty than than Zach does earlier in the album. Oh, we finally get a B section. Yes. Thank you. You made me wait the whole damn album for a B section. <laughs> it's not his best B section, but Absolutely. I'll take it. Okay, so here's what I said on this one. He calls back, in, in my opinion, to two of his bigger songs. First of all, the groove is not unlike mm -hmm. my life. It's got the same kind of movement to it. Um which is interesting because he's he's talking about you know his you know his life or the character's mm -hmm. life. The other one I think is Allentown because Avalon is a Jersey Shore town, and in Aval Allentown they spent their weekends on the Jersey okay. Shore. If you go My Life Allentown, really Allentown, My Life, and then this one because those are the two callbacks. He ends up where his parents were. He fights with them in My Life. He kind of pisses on their values or whatever they want for him. You know, in Allentown he talks about how those values abandon him. He twists it around mm -hmm. for a while. And where he ends up is sitting at the Jersey Shore, you know, which is something your parents mm -hmm. did or something you did too, you yeah. know, and um, then you're, what, you're back there just like your parents were on the weekend, you know, and you're watching everything after Labor Day, you know, like which Things, is the end the of the season's uh, closing down. Yeah. And there were two other callbacks that caught my eye too. Uh, you know, the mention of closing down for the season, I found the last of the souvenirs. 
Nothing left for a dream now. Only one final serenade. Ah. Just a couple, <laughs> couple words that were so synonymous in the songs they came from that they stuck out to me in this song. Another example of some really well-done, plain-spoken lyrics. Stack the chairs on the tabletops, hang the sheets on the chandeliers. You can picture that scene happening in a movie. Yeah, you could picture it, and it's just... Those are just two perfectly mm-hmm. written lines. Like, just the, the, the constructs yeah. of them. I mean, you know, these are the last words I have to say. That's why this took so long to write. It's not bad, but it's not as flowing, you know? This one has a lot of them, actually. They swept away all the streamers after the Labor Day parade. Almost, it's a little halting. You have right. to sing it. You have to put a little affectation mm-hmm. on that. Yeah, like, discomfort in my coffee cup and apples in the early fall. Like, that's a nice line, but that's also a uh, Target commercial of a line. Right, right, know? right. <laughs> I can still taste the wedding cake and it's sweet after all these years. Another solid 80%, but it stacked the chairs on the tabletops, hang the sheets on the chandeliers. That's perfect. Chandeliers is such a romantic word. Yeah. (laughs) And you do feel like Billy was closing the chapter intentionally on this recording chapter of his career. You know, he modifies the chorus every now and again as well. um, And Mm -hmm. some of the lines really speak to that. Uh, One is... And these are the last words I have to say. It's always hard to say goodbye, but now it's time to put this book away. And that's the story of my life. Like he can feel that he's closing a chapter. And then the other line, these are the last words I have to say before another age goes by with all these other songs I'll have to play. Ain't that the story of my life? Yeah, that's only something you're going to say if you got to play piano, man, 125 times. Exactly. Like (laughs) I may be done writing and putting out new material but i've got all these songs that i anytime i perform i gotta play them all right well that's an album my friend it is <laughs> a lot to unpack there 10 songs five of them were singles tell us what you thought of this one as we said i think uh i think we're gonna get some uh differing opinions on this one i think you're right you know i've always been a lords of 52nd street guy i've got a special place in my heart for those guys but going into this album again with an open mind uh taking it at face value for what it is and listening to these songs and this recording with that in mind really gave me a new appreciation for a lot of things i may have either unintentionally overlooked or my past prejudices about the situation led me a certain way but um it's an important record in billy's career and you know it's a shame that he decided to stop recording after this because I really, I would have been interested to see what came next. But at the same time, you want an artist who's got nothing left in the tank just to keep cranking stuff out. I'd almost rather him stop while he's still happy with what he's doing than to just put out stuff and you're like, oh, well, that's too bad. He went out on top. He went out with one more round of award nominations and and adding one more into the canon. I mean, you know what? How much do you think River of Dreams contributes to the Madison Square Garden residency now? Just like an innocent man about 10 years prior earned him a new generation of fans with that one last album at just the right time, he picked us all up. You know, I mean, I was already on the boat, you were on the boat, but you know, how many people, like I said, got River of Dreams that year for their birthday, for Christmas, because they heard it on the radio, you know, and that, that got the next generation going. You know, those seventh and eighth graders are however old. And if nothing more, River of Dreams has become a standard in the Billy Joel catalog. So, yeah, let us know what you think. Uh, give us an email, glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. Find us on the socials, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We don't get a lot of tweets. I should tweet us more, but whatever. At any rate, hit us up there. 
give us a tweet tweet thread because uh, you know you can't just do this in a couple of characters and uh, let us know what you think and by the way if you happen to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please make sure to give us that five-star rating and positive review. Every five-star rating tells Apple that we're a quality production and that they should put us in front of more people. So it's a quick and easy way to support us. I would really love to hear everyone's thoughts on this record. Um, were you part of the camp that didn't love the change or did you love the different approach that Billy took with River of Dreams? And, you know, was this the album where you got on the ride? You know, like we were saying, so many people got on at many different stages of his career. I think Stormfront and River of Dreams were the two albums that brought the younger generations in that, you know, it kind of piled on a little bit. But you saw big surges of new new younger audiences with these two records in particular, I think. All right. And these are the last words I have to say. (laughs) Before another episode goes by. Uh, there it is <laughs> I'm leaving that in we'll see you next time guys thanks again <laughs>